Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the show. It is now Christmas Eve at the time of this airing, though we've actually done this episode in advance because I like to have a buffer sometimes. It gets a little tricky when you do theme months, though, because then you kind of run out of ideas for the theme of the month, but I'm joined by a guest today. Hello, people of the future. It's me, Heffy. <laughs> yeah, we talked about uh, The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker and reacted to Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity, and now she's here with me to talk about two games that we both really enjoy, because... Back in Christmas of the year 2000, uh, that was the year that I first received two games, Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask and Banjo-Tooie, two sequels to other Nintendo 64 games, with a few other things in common, too, that we're gonna go over eventually. A surprising amount, (laughs) when you think about it practically the 20-year anniversary of these games for as far as my life is concerned, and it's also, I believe, your birthday, so your birthday gets episodes based off two games you like. I couldn't ask for a better present. Honestly, these two games are kind of like in my top five of all time, so I am very happy to be in this episode. Yeah, so... Like I said before, Banjo-Tooie and Majora's Mask are both sequels to other games on the same system, and they both make use of a lot of the same graphics and stuff, and few things were carried over from one game to the other that couldn't quite always make it, I think. And they're both tonally darker than their predecessors, on top of being more difficult and... Just kind of taking the gameplay in a different direction from their predecessors overall. Yeah, the darkness is kind of the big thing, the most immediately noticeable thing. Especially, like, the moment you start both games, within the first five minutes, it just kind of smacks you in the face with it. <laughs> in both, just right off the bat. Um, I assume we'll get into that, though. But um, as far as approach to game design, I think Tui was probably meant more to be just an evolution of or more just more of kazooie just like take one banjo kazooie game stack it on the other and there you go majora i feel like was always going to be a lot more experimental and it was pretty much born under the pressures of a very intense deadline where they had to cut corners and get really creative with what they wanted to do with this so I feel like their approaches to the design are both similar and very different in a way. Yeah, Majora's Mask was definitely them trying to be a little bit different. Banjo-Tooie's differences are a little more a consequence of what the game ended up being. The fact is that Banjo-Kazooie is something of a typical platformer, a really polished one, but it's a 3D platformer. People often say it's aged better than Mario 64 did. You know what? Like, I want to say that the praise it gets is a lot more universal and, like, you know, what's the word? 
consistent compared to Mario 64. So I would agree on that front. We'll just wait until we get, like, the the personalized copies of Banjo-Kazooie with, like, the Gruntilda apparition. or <laughs> The uh, the Bumper the Badger apparition. Because, you know, Wario's not in Mario 64, and it would be a character who's not in Banjo. And, yeah, that's the joke. Just just make it Wario all across the board. It's always Wario. His influence spreads. He's doing research for all the WarioWare games that reference the other Nintendo games. <laughs> yes, I remember the Banjo-Kazooie WarioWare minigames, of course. How could I forget? Anyway, compared to Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie is way more expansive to the point where it's often considered to be a 3D Metroidvania. Yeah, I've heard that term recently, and I honestly really like it, because it kind of summarizes why I love that game so much. And well, you know what a Metroidvania is, right? Yes, it is something... Okay, I know what it is, but describing it is another thing. It's like, in a Metroid game, or a more modern Castlevania game, you'll be progressing, and you'll find roadblocks that don't have to pass just yet, but you can come back to later once you obtain something. You keep it in mind and you keep it in your head, and then once you get the thing, you go back and you can get past, and overall there's a lot less linearity, there's more emphasis on exploration, and I think that's the approach that Tui takes, probably on purpose, I would say, compared to Kazooie, which is more just, um, you can pretty much knock out every world in one sitting, more or less, with a few exceptions. Yeah. A Metroidvania game, from what I've observed, is that they're really big and labyrinthine, and you can stray from the intended path a little bit, but generally there's only one course that's available to you, but then the overall world gradually opens up with the more capabilities you unlock over time. And that's basically Banjo-Tooie in a nutshell. I think the interconnectivity of the in-game worlds really helps with the comparisons oh yeah that was a definitely a big thing and i i thought when i was a kid and i still think it's honestly really really cool and exciting when you find the secret door in one world and oh my gosh look where you are now i I know it felt like breaking the rules (laughs) yeah it really did this this must be like the kind of thing that donald duck hates in kingdom hearts (laughs) the world order we're breaking it but yeah, I don't think any levels in Tui exist in a bubble. Like, they all connect to at least one other level, with the possible exception of Cloud Cuckoo Land. But even then, that has effects on other levels, with making it rain for the dinosaur that's thirsty, or knocking the ice cube over the edge. Yeah, so if you include that, literally every world is uh, connected to another in some regard. Oh, and I guess Canary Mary. Yeah, there's another. <laughs> I mean, those are more like, I wouldn't say necessarily gameplay connections, because like, you don't warp from one to the other, but hmm. it's still a consequence of something you did in one world, her being there. She doesn't appear until you beat her in the mines. Twice, yeah. should I mention. <laughs> I guess Cauldron Keep is kind of in a bubble, but I don't really consider that to be a proper world. Cauldron Keep is kind of a sad story because it was going to be a world and kind of a really cool looking one is like a haunted castle kind of thing. And I get the impression that just before Tui was, you know, Donkey Kong 64, 
which had its own big old haunted castle world at the end. And I get the feeling that there was some too much idea overlap there that they felt was redundant. Maybe. Uh, it's definitely an interesting story to hear what levels got cut and what levels got moved around in development, because I think some of the Kazooie and Tui levels were swapped around. Like, I think Witchy World might have been planned to be a Kazooie World at one point. I remember hearing Glitter Gulch and... Mine was, and it's, I, I don't, I can't quote for certain all of this, but there are, like, confirmations out there on the internet by the developers. Of course, the most famous example is probably uh, Mount Fire Eyes. Yeah, that that one probably made it the farthest of all of them. Yeah, like, do you want to talk about Govi? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so the character Govi and Kazooie, who is a camel that you have to harass in, like, multiple worlds to get jiggies, at the very end, he just runs out of the entire game is like, that's it. I'm going to the lava world. You'll never find me there. And I pretty late into Kazooie's development, there's going to be a lava world. But of course that didn't happen. Then skip ahead to Tui. You have a lava world. And who's there? It's Gobi the camel. And you beat him up again for a jiggy. <laughs> well first you have to free him from Witchy World. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, that's why there's that random lava room in Grunty's Lair. Oh, really? So that's the, where the level is going to be. Yeah, and that. then they made it the lobby for Mad Monster Mansion instead. <clears throat> yeah, that always kind of stuck out to me, so that makes a lot more sense now. I always thought Gobi was talking about the Furnace Fun game. I mean, yeah, that's that's a lava world, technically. <laughs> Because I, I kind of spoiled what the end of the game was because of the strategy guide. Because that was back in the day of shamelessly reading the strategy guide. And I was like, where's he gonna fit? It's a whole game board. <laughs> He's on his space. It's the Gobi space. I'm Guy Fieri. Can you harass Gobi how many times in a minute? Find out on Minute to Win It. <laughs> Not where I expected you to take that. <laughs> Guy Fieri is the host of Furnace Fun. Guy Fi Fieri? I tried. Just, just imagine Banjo-Kazooie, but with Guy Fieri instead of Gruntilda. That, that is a mod waiting to happen. I can't believe it took until the 156th podcast to talk about Guy Fieri. Really? This is the first time? I don't believe it. <laughs> I call shenanigans. So... Yeah, a lot of levels moved around in development. I get the sense that Click Clock Wood might have been a Tui level for the longest time before they put it into Kazooie at like the last minute. I don't have any confirmation on that though, but there are a lot of things that make sense about it. How the level is a lot bigger <clears throat> than the others, even without the fact that you go through it four times. There's also just the abundance of recycled enemies from other levels how a lot of things are more task-based like the levels in Tui would go on to be and how out of the way the puzzle for that stage is yeah there are recurring sentiments from you know you'll see them all across the internet how how out of place click Clockwood kind of feels in kazooie especially as the last world and Having it be planned for Tui, it is so much more designed like a Tui world, absolutely. And that makes a ton of sense. 
I was even telling you one time that I thought Rusty Bucket Bay would have made a better final world because you learn the last bottles move in Gobi's Valley, and then you go to Mad Monster Mansion, and there's Mumbo one more time. Then you go to Rusty Bucket Bay, which is the most difficult world so far, and now you have neither of your friends here to help you. It's all Banjo and Kazooie by themselves, and... Oh, wait, no, here's an extra world. Oh, hey, Mumbo's back. (laughs) That would make a lot, lot of sense, probably more sense, because, you know, the themes, too, like, it's it's this dangerous, toxic harbor, you go through this treacherous engine room, the infamous engine room, and instead, the last world is like, you know, this tearful forest with cute Disney animals. It, it would always kind of boggle me as a kid. <laughs> boggle. I, I do like that the final world is a little less cliche, but... I think Rusty Bucket Bay still would have made a better finish. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. So, that was a bit of the... Well, I think that was more Kazooie talk than Tooie talk. Oops. But the idea is that their developments were really closely intertwined, which is best demonstrated with the whole stop-and-swap legend. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, kind of ended up in Tooie, but not in really the way they intended. It's, it's just a band-aid? Yeah, band-aid is a good word. It's, it gets you the dragon transformation, though. It's pretty neat. Yeah, that's, uh... That's, uh... That was worth it. <laughs> I I thought it was worth it when I was little. But I just like dragons, so... I guess you also get the Briegel Bash. Like, finally, all this hard work, <laughs> okay, I can no, use Kazooie was, as a bludgeon. That was worth it. That was amazing. That's Banjo's forward smash in Smash Brothers, so does that make Stop and Swap canon to his Smash Brothers appearance? Yes. Try using that on Sephiroth. <laughs> Omni Briegel. Just like the Omni Slash, but with Kazooie instead of a sword. That poor bird can't catch a break. She kind of deserves it. Yeah, she brings it on herself. So yeah, very connected development. Meanwhile, Majora's Mask was a whole different story. For people who care about the game, it's kind of an old story by now, but just to kind of summarize it, is that they were sort of tapped for ideas on what to do after Ocarina of Time. They thought, well, hey, let's do a bigger, fancier version of Ocarina of Time. And I think Aonuma was not really into the idea because he thought they did all they could with Ocarina of Time. So he was challenged to make his own game in about a year. I think the development actually went slightly over a year, but that's that's probably just like gracefulness since they'd already come so far. And to save on time and resources, they reused a lot of character models and such and tweaked a few things and voila, new Zelda game. Now, speaking of similarities in development processes and uh, the whole being intertwined with the future release thing, wasn't like there was a planned Ocarina of Time expansion for the disk drive. And uh, I know there's going to be more new features, new dungeons, stuff like that. Was that yeah, intertwined that was... into Majora's development at all? Well, I think that I think that was some of the plans they had before. They were like, yeah, we can't really fix what isn't broken with Ocarina of Time. Right, okay. That's that's my interpretation of it anyway. I've I've heard the story several times, but the details are slightly different each time. That's how it goes with uh, these stories, it feels like. 
Well, well, Heffy, my uncle works at Nintendo, and he told me that's exactly what happened. Well, that that clinches it then. Let's let's put it in put it in the Wikipedia's, the encyclopedias. It's it's there. That's it. And I thought it was kind of interesting that they saw fit to explain away the use of similar characters and stuff as being an alternate reality to Hyrule when. I think most games wouldn't really give it a second thought. Yeah, I think one Majora's special, like in video games as a whole, I think for a lot of reasons, and one of those for me for sure is a uh, its approach to you know the necessary like shortcuts it had to take in development and how they intertwine those you know the world building, the thematic elements, and I just think it's really really cool and these characters that Link encountered in Hyrule before, he's seeing them in Termina again, just, you know, they don't recognize him. They're, like, living different lives. They're the same people, just with different names. And it all kind of contributes to this very... Majora is like a dream. It's like this very Wonderland-like dream experience for me. And I get the feeling that's kind of what they're going for in some ways. We can get into that more later, though, I think. Yeah, that's definitely one of the vibes that game gives me, and I feel like uh, one of the contributors to that was Yoshiaki Koizumi, who you might recognize as the guy who did a bunch of visual magic during the Switch presentation when he just was suddenly on a beach and suddenly had ice in a glass to demonstrate the <laughs> HD rumble. Yes, he will go down in history for these, uh, th- th- that... <laughs> That was him. That was the guy. He was involved with Majora's Mask to some extent. Yeah, he's uh, he's been in Nintendo for a very long time. Yeah, he's kind of ascending the ranks there. I, I believe he was also involved with Rosalina's backstory in Mario Galaxy. Now that makes a lot of sense, because that kind of feels like something you would have found in Majora. Like, and as part of a little side quest, you know? Yeah, they're both different games from their predecessors in one way or another. One is a lot more expansive. The other is kind of smaller in scale, but more personal. Majora's Mask is a lot more about side quests and affecting the world around you in an intimate way and not simply saving it, though that's definitely a part of it. Yeah, Majora is definitely the primary example I can think of of a game that is more about the side quests than about the main quests. Quest, that's not a plural, quest. (laughs) There is only one quest, and it's to stop the moon. Main quest. Side quests, there are a ton of those, like at least 20. (laughs) Well, the main quest is to get the mask back, technically. That's the one that's sent out by your mission control, the mask salesman. Mission control. Yeah, he he is that, isn't he? Happy Mask Salesman. I'm trying to sneak around. God. I, I, I didn't want to finish that meme, but you know what I'm referencing. Yeah, you should not have finished it, and I'm glad you didn't. I'm, I'm trying to think. Banjo-Tooie is a bit more side quest focused, too, but it's less about telling the personal stories of different characters and more about beefing up the requirements to get jiggies and stuff and playing up how the different worlds affect each other in slight ways. Yeah, I mean, it is a collectathon, and at the end of the day, it's about getting stuff. But 
in the case of Majora, you could argue that it's a collectathon in itself. Because there are like, you know, 20-something masks to get. Well, yeah, it's got more things to collect than a usual Zelda, I'd say, because of the masks. Makes you think. Thinking about how the different worlds in Tui are connected, I think the two biggest examples are the train and the jacuzzi in Jolly Roger's Lagoon. <laughs> it is a jacuzzi, isn't it? But uh, yeah, that, that jacuzzi jiggy. How many worlds does that involve? Okay, it involves Hailfire Peaks. I think Pterodactyland, right? Let's see. You have to stop the poison water from pouring out of Grunty's Industries. Uh-huh. And, and really, there's no reason for it to be at Grunty's Industries. They could have just coded it as like a room in Jolly Roger's Lagoon, but they wanted that extra connectivity, so good on them well, for I that. Mean, listen, they had this world already. It's like a toxic factory. Why not, you know, have the toxic sludge come from the toxic factory? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm saying they think they did it mostly just to play up how the worlds are connected, and I thought that's neat. Okay. Because they didn't have to do that. Yeah. They went hard in this, and this jiggy is just the epitome of it. You go there, and you turn off the toxic water, but now the water's too cold, so... There's this random pool of water in the fiery side of Hailfire Peaks that has no business being there, but it's really hot. It's really hot. So eventually, in the final world of Cloud Cuckoo Land, you knock an ice cube over the edge and make sure he never sees his wife again. (laughs) So now this side quest has a body count. He died for these pig children. He is sentient and you killed him. He lands in the water and cools it down, and then you hit a switch with a move that you learned from some other world, (laughs) and that releases the water into uh, Jolly Roger's Lagoon for some reason. And then finally, World 4, by the way, and it (laughs) takes you all the way until, like, World 8 to actually see this quest through, you finally get a Jiggy from the kids, and that's just... That's a lot of work for one Jiggy. The reward... It's not about the reward here. It's about the journey. I was watching a video about how ultimately pointless it was to make that switch require the... I don't know, all of Banjo's solo moves have the same name, basically. But... You don't need to have Banjo use that move, technically, or you shouldn't need it, because the water's already cold enough, you've already come this far, why why lock the Jiggy behind Banjo learning that extra move? It's just dumb. Well, they have the move, and they need more stuff for it to do, so I think the issue might be why they needed that move in the first place. And Tui does kind of have, you know, some concerns about bloating. Like, the moves, there are so many moves in that game. Like, and I think it's still pretty neat to, you know, have that many abilities. You're still learning near the end of the game. Like, in Kazooie, you're done learning moves around, like, the halfway point, right? Like, Gobi's Valley. Gobi's Valley. Yeah. And Tui, you're learning them right up until the last world, I think, Cloud Cuckoo Land, right? Yeah. They they just tried to, like, beef up the amount of power-ups and abilities you have, and they wanted Banjo and Kazooie solo to have a robust moveset for each, when 
I don't think they needed that many. Like, the the claw clamber boots and the springy step shoes. Uh, uh okay, I kind of remember the claw clamber boots, but how many times do the springy step shoes really do anything of uh, worth? Like, maybe, maybe twice? Yeah, I want to say twice. Maybe three times. They were, they, those were a filler thing. And the claw clamber boots aren't really much better, but I at least have... I, the, the visual of them climbing up the icy volcano with them just kind of sticks out in my brain. That is a very memorable moment. Just that, that area. So yeah, the other way that the worlds are interconnected is with the train. You will unlock it in World 2 after Mumbo Jumbo lifts it in the air, and then you defeat Old King Cole, the most deadly of the Banjo bosses. <laughs> Who is dead within, like, a minute. Probably less. Definitely less. <laughs> you can now use the train to go to a train station in several of the following worlds as long as you hit a train switch. And in fact, it's outright necessary to use the train to access Grunty Industries later in the game. Yeah, I always thought that was interesting in particular. Because it is pos- entirely possible for you to get that far without, you know, even paying attention to the train. And then all of a sudden, like, hey, remember this? Yeah, it's time to use it. Other than that, the most involved the train gets is escorting the dinosaur children around. That jiggy I still do not like doing. It's always a pain. (laughs) Yeah, and even Kazooie's like, really? All that for one jiggy? (laughs) At least Rare kind of knew. I mean... Yes, being, being aware that you're doing something bad makes it okay. I mean, for all we're knocking on Tui right now, it has a lot going for it. We we love the internet connectivity of the worlds. We love the Metroidvania aspects. Uh, a lot of the moves they do add to the table. They are fun, I think. And I know as a kid that having those two split up was one of the biggest selling points for me. I was super excited to just, you know, be Kazooie by herself out of the backpack. She's free. Yeah, I do think that it just demonstrates that they were full of creativity and they had so many ideas they wanted to do. And that's a lot more forgivable than a game that feels like they're doing everything out of obligation. Oh yeah, for sure. Now, Majora's Mask is kind of interesting because a lot of its side quests are very well beloved, even though a lot of the times the reward at the end isn't really that meaningful in the strictest sense of gameplay like the couple's mask it has all this pomp and circumstance it's one of the most involved side quests in the series and all it really amounts to is a heart piece for defusing the mayor's meeting mm-hmm. well the difference there is that these side quests all of them tell a story about you know these characters these npcs as they would be normally called i mean they still are but you know, in Ocarina of Time, you have all these people in just Castletown or Kakariko just kind of standing around. You run by them every day, just kind of like, you know, maybe you'll talk to them once or twice and forget about them. And in Majora, the gist is that, you know, these are people, and they all have lives and schedules, like time schedules throughout each of these three days. And each one intertwines into at least one, sometimes more, of these side quests that you can do. And their lives affect other people's lives, their decisions affect, affect other people's decisions, and it's 
it's storytelling, really. In Tui, it's about, you know, platforming or puzzle solving or, you know, just just collecting stuff. That's that's the thrill of Banjo. You don't really get to know the pigs on a deeper level after <laughs> you solve their toxic jacuzzi. They just kind of thank you, I think. I don't even know if they thank you, but... Like, you kill an NPC just to solve these pigs' problems. Yes, yeah, Intui is played for laughs. In Majora, it would be dramatic. Like, very dramatic. Except you can you can kill an NPC in Majora's Mask, and nobody really thinks any differently afterward. Uh, which one are we thinking of here? Uh, if you detonate the stolen bombs while the thief is carrying <laughs> them. That's right! <laughs> well, he had it coming. He's a thief. Nobody likes him. Well, maybe he had children to feed. You ever think of that? No. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) They're very tonally different games. They both get darker from their predecessor, which we talked about before. Banjo just kind of takes it in stride, like it's dark comedy, while Majora goes for a more melancholic approach with it. Mm Mm-hmm. And when talking about the Zelda series, that kind of carries that, you know, sense of melancholy from a a previous Zelda, Link's Awakening, which I think I talked about you with, talked with about you, or talked about with you, words. <laughs> I, I remember that time you were just talking to your copy of the game, and it was like, oh yeah, that Petey guy, he's kind of weird. Oh my god. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was, between those two... And and further entries, like you say, Twilight Princess or even Breath of the Wild, I always thought that the Zelda series had did a very excellent job at, you know, balancing melancholy with adventure and kind of this bittersweet feeling. Bittersweet is probably the most apt word I can think of in a lot of instances. If it's not bittersweet, though, it's just, you know, soul-crushing. They do that pretty well, too. And Majora, in particular, it, it crushes your soul. And it pulls no punches. Especially if you screw up some of the side quests. Oh god. Romani is just one of the most upsetting things in any game I have played. Or how about if you forget to remind Anju that her boyfriend will come back for her, so you go through the quest with him, and then he comes back to an empty hotel room, and oh, she's not there. God. Oh, that's the worst. It hurts so good. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Banjo-Tooie, not only do you kill that ice cube, but you also kill his wife just to free a Jinjo family. Yep, gotta collect stuff. Don't care. Die. I'm pretty sure there's more examples. Oh, well, there's always Gobi. He's another example of the game's dark humor. He deserved none of this. He's, he's, he's just a camel. Being a camel. You free him at first, but like, you know... He, he's he got jiggies. You want them. You need jiggies. Give them here. A lot of the bosses are willing to mind their own business until you just happen to walk in on them or Kazooie sasses them enough times. Either they're these creatures in their lair kind of guarding for t- treasure you need. Okay, that's that's within the realm of an adventurer. Or, you know, like, give take Terry, for example, this, this parent who's really upset about his children missing his eggs takes it out on you, you beat him and he cries and you still get a jiggy. Or they're just, you know, kind of existing, like the dragons. Well, no, not the dragons. They they attack you on sight, but still. 
Well, they, they're waiting for pizza, and you're not their pizza man. That's fair, but they're spitting ice and fire on you on the whole time, so you do need to, like, you know, give them a slap on the wrist. You know, when I was very young, I thought those fire and ice dragons would have a mom that's like a big grass dragon because I remembered. <laughs> grass. Because I remembered the. Gotta have those. Well, I remembered the Christmas special with the fire guy and the ice guy, and their mom was Mother Nature. So I was thinking it'd be like that. Oh god, that's right. I was. I thought you were going for like a Pokemon kind of thing with like the, the starter trio, but yeah. Well, it's kind of worth going back to Terry. He doesn't die, unlike most of the bosses. Okay, the dragons, they don't die either, but Terry lives, and he wants you to go bring his kids back to him. Then you hatch whichever one is the last one. It's really big, fat baby pterodactyl. And he's like, eh, that one might be too big. Just leave it behind. And even Kazooie is like, dude. <laughs> you are heartless. And he's like, just kidding. That's, that's the thing. That game has a sense of humor that the first one only used sparingly. The first game was a lot more whimsical. Uh-huh, yeah. Like, Tui has a lot more of that, you know, what they call the rare trademark British wit, snark, kind of dark humor. It's very dry. Another thing that's indicative of this is that you don't get a lot of talking objects in this game as much as you did in the first one. <laughs> yeah, and Kazooie, pretty much literally every collectible speaks to you like the first time you get it. Even the caterpillars that you're supposed to feed to this baby bird, they call out and protest. They're like, hey, I'm a Jiggy. Collect more of me. In this game, maybe... uh Maybe, like, jam jars will tell you, like, indirectly, even before you meet him, what you're supposed to do if you collect something, or the game will just let you figure it out on your own. Yeah, in Tui, they kind of, like, narrowed down the all the tutorial stuff in this one character who is, you know, Bottle's brother. And in Kazooie, they could have had Bottle's tell you everything, too, like that. But instead, let's make everything anthropomorphic and cute and say, how do you do? And then there's the HUD itself. It's a lot... You had, like, big balloon letters to describe everything, and now everything is all neat and organized and lined up just right with each other. And even though it appeases my OCD, it's still a lot less whimsical than the first game's menus. Well, you got a lot more stuff to collect this time. It's time to get serious with it. And that's the thing. Dark humor aside, I think the more straight-laced approach is supposed to be indicative of what kind of adventure this is, because this time it's personal, and it's not going to be as easy as the first one. Because now Banjo and Kazooie are really just out for revenge above all else. Yeah, there's there's a habit of sequels for children's media. Of, like, the second iteration to be tailored more toward the same kids who played the originals, but now they're a little older. They have different tastes. They don't want stuff to be quite as babyish, as they would say. And uh, a recent example, I would say, is, you know, Frozen 2. Disney is doing that kind of. And uh, in Tui, for sure, like, it was how many years? Two years, the, just like in real gap? life. Um, two years. Like, well, even two years, like, when you're a kid, that's a lot. And you learn a lot in two years. 
you learn a lot about the world and how, you know... I learned about not parentheses. Not nice it can be. <laughs> See? Exactly. This game did actually... I, I mentioned this before, but this game is the first time I saw parentheses, and I, I, I don't know, for some reason I always associate... I, that's like one of my strong memories of the game is, oh yeah, parentheses. <laughs> I mean, video games are kind of like that, especially when you play them at young, like, you know... There, you're introduced to a lot of concepts that you might not know. Well, you would have found out otherwise, but th- it just happens to be through this game. Because the worlds are so stuff. big in this game that they need to specify which part of the world you're in. <clears throat> With parentheses. But yeah, it's a darker game overall. It's It never really shies away from its identity as a whimsical game, but it's a lot less, uh, what's it say, fanciful? I don't know if that's quite the right word. I feel like that's a good term. Like there's, there's even you know the the worlds they chose. In Kazooie, you have things like it's it's Kazooie has more of a fairy tale feel. It is it is a storybook game. There's a colorful grassland, mountain, tropical beach with pirates. There's a spooky haunted house, but it's very kind of cutesy spooky. Yeah. You know, like Halloween, Egyptian desert. Two, you have things like. Uh, there's this ugly, toxic factory. There are these coal mines. Brown There's dinosaur a... land. Yeah, <laughs> it's a. Uh, it's not quite as colorful. In some ways, that is a bit less appealing, even as an adult. But it also kind of grounds the adventure a bit more. And it's interesting to see these characters from this past adventure that has been so comical and colorful have to deal with this new world, which is a bit more. It's it's a bit more intense. That's not to say that Kazooie was all sunshine all the time either, because there was Rusty Bucket Bay, and of course there's the bad ending. Yeah, and K- Kazooie, both games have always been very good about, even though they're these silly cartoon animals, there are stakes. And when you're a kid, the stakes are very, very real. And they hammer them in for you, like with that game over scene. Okay, so in Kazooie, every time you would pause and want to click the game, you get the game over screen. It would like it's like it was punishing you for wanting to stop playing, and it was just this awful thing when you're little. And fast forward to Tui, you still get like a game over screen, but it's just like the text, and then you're right back in the title screen. They don't have any cutscene, you know, like rubbing it in your face that oh, you failed because you didn't want to play this game for like forever. Mm-hmm. Tui does feel a bit more real and grounded, like you said. It also helps that. We're expanding the world out of the Spiral Mountain and the fact that you actually find all these worlds within nature itself. They're not just these random little tourist attractions in Gruntilda's house. Well, like, Gruntilda's lair, like, that kind of adds to the storybook feeling in a way. Like, these are... I thought it was implied that there's, like, kind of magical lands created by this witch to, you know, challenge you. They're similar to, like, the paintings in Mario 64, kind of. Like, they're not quite real, but, you know, you still gotta go through them. over whether they're real or not. But in TUI, there's no doubt about it. These are places you can go in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. They all have a very specific entrance. Like, you go through the doors of the factory. You go through a cavern that leads you into this dinosaur kingdom. And it's interesting, the contrast, while TUI is a lot more real... Majora's Mask is a lot hazier and dreamlike. Yeah, especially in contrast to Ocarina, which is you kind of you kind of know what you're getting with this. It, I don't want to say by the books, but it is a fantasy adventure, like 
certain ones you've seen. And just like with Banjo before, that's not to say that Majora's Mask was all gloomy or that there were no melancholic aspects to Ocarina of Time. Oh god, no, there, there absolutely were. But um, I feel like in Ocarina, it was a different kind of melancholy, and not even just melancholy, just more like, there was horror in Ocarina. And like very explicit horror there's there's you know these bloody torture chambers there are these screaming zombies and stuff like that and majora majora is also a very upsetting kind of frightening game but it's a different kind of horror it's it's it feels more you know internal and oppressive almost due to the stuff you go through and these people you see suffering and living in fear and sadness the, f- the horror in Majora comes from, you know, what other people around you are experiencing, almost. Yeah, it's not like Jason's gonna come out and get you with a machete or something. But imagine if he did. Yeah. The Jason mask. Da 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 da. <laughs> no, Link, no. Now, I think it's also worth noting that both the game, both the sequels, kind of went in opposite directions in terms of how they were regarded, because Tui, I remember, was hailed as just as good as Banjo-Kazooie growing up. A lot of people put them on the same pedestal, and while it still has its fans, people are a little bit more soured on it for contributing to the downfall of collectathons, while Kazooie gets remembered more nostalgically. Meanwhile, Majora's Mask was kind of slept on at the time by people outside the fan base, and over time, people have started to respect it more for its ambition and storytelling and character focus. Yeah, that's those are very interesting parallels, and I guess it kind of tells you a bit about what these two games did right or wrong, and might have been, you know, what gamers wanted gamers. Hey, gamers! Said that. What, peop- what people playing these games would have, you know, wanted at the time versus what what they value in a game nowadays. Yeah. I think some people are kind of starting to sour on Majora's Mask again because they might start to think it's overrated or something like that. Really? I don't, oh. I don't know that. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true, because, you know, Ocarina was critically acclaimed for, like, a straight decade, probably more, and people did get sick of it, and there's there was this turnaround of criticism towards just for a lot of people liking it. And that's how it goes with anything popular, really. You know what that means, Heffy? Wind Waker's next. No. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> Wind Waker must be loved forever, because it is objectively perfect. You hear me? Actually, I think that one was already kind of slept on when it was started, because it wasn't gritty enough. Oh, no, people hated Wind Waker when it came that out. Was, that was the big that, selling though. point of Twilight Princess, is, okay, we're gritty again, we're serious. Yeah, the selling point was literally, this isn't Wind Waker, please buy it. But I think Majora's Mask... It's kind of funny that people didn't really like it as much at the time, but it was the first really pop, really like exposed Zelda game mainstream to get 
a little darker than its predecessors. It kind of started the trend in a way, and that's what people like now. Yeah, Majora was very ambitious artistically in terms of storytelling, and Zelda fans or people who were playing Nintendo games at the time probably weren't all ready for that or, you know, interested in that kind of exploration in, you know, their Zelda games. And I think the turnaround that game has gotten has been a result of these people playing as kids coming back to it when they're older and seeing, you know, a lot more that was here that they might not have appreciated back then. And I can say for myself that that's what I fell into. Because when this game first came out, Majora, like, I loved Ocarina of Time. I didn't get far in it when I was little, but I loved it. And here's this other game just like it, so I give it a try, and it's it's dark, it's depressing, it's terrifying, it's confusing, I don't know where to go, it's stressful because of this time limit, and I just put it down for, like, several years after that, because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ready, I didn't know what to, how to approach it. And after playing more Zelda over the years, like, I saw that this game was still there, and that I hadn't really played it, and going back to it was it was really really eye-opening just this just this really really intense emotional experience that this game provides that is waiting for people who are willing to get past the stuff that isn't very inviting like the time limit or the darkness and i'm personally very glad that i went back when i did i was a teenager i did i'm glad i didn't wait until i was too old to you know not get as profound experience from this game as I did. Like I said, I experienced both these games around the same time as a very surprisingly dark Christmas morning. <laughs> Bottles is dead! <laughs> the world is ending! God, for real. Happy holidays. Yeah, I just kind of took it in stride, oddly enough. I was like, oh, that's different. I mean, no, yeah. I was only seven. I mean, funny enough, when, with Tui, I thought it was exciting. It was, it was this bigger adventure with higher stakes. Which was, I was like, eh, I don't like this, I don't know what to do. But it's very interesting that these games... I, I, maybe I'm seeing patterns that don't exist, but I just see a lot of parallels to these games and how they're similar in one way, but complete opposites a different way. And the, the only real connective tissue is that they're both sequels to games on the same platforms as their predecessor... And it's all the same platform altogether. And they're all in kind of the same time frame. And yeah, when when you grew up in the N64 and you experience both of these games coming out around the same time, there there is an inherent connection you make. Especially with like, you know, how similar the tones of these two games are. And almost makes you wonder if it wasn't quite coincidence. It probably was, but like, you know. It's fun to imagine. Yeah, life isn't as innocent as it was when I was a five-year-old. I'm a seven-year-old now. I'm a certified big exactly. boy. That's like how it feels, though, when you're that when you're growing up that at that age. Just, just the world changes so fast, and these games that you're playing, these different games as you get older, it 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 reflects that. I think these probably were my first dark games even though I didn't really understand that at the time. Yeah, I would say so as well. The year 2000 on the N64, it, it was a special one. Is there anything else that 
we can think of to say about these games as kind of foils to each other. Hmm. Because I could probably talk about either of these games all day, but I, I feel like I hit on most of the big points that came to mind. Well, we could theorize about what it would be like if Tui had a mass system, or if Majora had a mole teaching Link these different moves. I've had about enough of Majora's Mask and theories. Yeah, same. Banjo is dead. <laughs> oh, I suddenly remembered a really weird idea I had as a kid, and I want to share it on the podcast. It is actually in Good. the wake of these two games. Oh, I know what this is. <laughs> is as a small child on the bus to school, or from school, or or both maybe... I imagined a weird Banjo-Tooie Majora's Mask crossover where Banjo ended up in Termina and Link ended up on the Isle of Hags and they just went through each other's games and because there's only four dungeons in Majora's Mask, that meant that Link only got to go through the first four worlds of Banjo-Tooie and I decided, oh, okay, that's it, that's the end. Mm, this concept has some flaws. Need to work it out more. But uh, fast forward to the twenty, the late twenty tens. Look at the Nintendo sixty four modding scene. Now we have Banjo and Majora's Mask for yeah. real. I was just thinking of Smash Brothers Ultimate, but yours is a little more on the mark. <laughs> the march, the progress of humanity. Yes, my my dreams are slowly coming true, just like my original Smash Brothers dream of making Squirtle fight Mumbo Jumbo. Sadly, that is still well, not an option. Well, well, it kind of is. If you make, if you do what I did, you make Squirtle fight the Mumbo Spirit Battle. Mm, yeah, I guess if you look at it that well, way. In lore, that's the point of the Spirit Battles: is that they're controlled by the spirit of the character depicted. Oh God, you're right. So it did come yeah. true. Thanks, Sakurai. And now I can make Sephiroth fight mumbo-jumbo if I want. <laughs> oh god, what kind of timeline are you living in? You know, forget secret FBI agents listening in. There were secret Nintendo ninjas listening in to all my weird fantasies as a kid. Their only desire is to make children happy. When they're, like, in their 20s, but... Well, see, Smash Brothers is for good boys and girls of all ages. Sakura yeah. said it himself, that's why my Shiranui won't be represented in King of Fighters. Well, on that note, I think we've said most of all there is to say on Banjo-Tooie and Majora's Mask, unless you had anything else to add? Uh, I think I've, we covered pretty much all the big points, yeah. Alright, well, thank you all for listening, thank you for appearing, and happy birthday in advance. Thank you. Having me on this for my birthday is pretty, pretty swell. Yeah, very convenient timing. <laughs> like, like, don't give me too much credit. I was going to do this episode on this day regardless. But then you remembered I exist. Happy holidays, everyone. I'll see you on the next one. Bye. Listen to BitCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.